Let's listen carefully together to God's perfect word, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my thoughts. Sorry, with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You help me, sorry, you hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your, scriptures, from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as day. For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My, my soul knows it well, it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intrinsically woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were, was none of them. How precious to me you are thought. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If you would not count them, they are more than the sand. If you would count them. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. O oh God, O oh men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not hate those who hate. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thank you, everyone. Would you be so kind as to join me in prayer? God, thank you that you are able, that we're able to come together and worship you today. I pray that you prepare us to receive this passage and illuminate the message you have for us today. We are made to worship and to serve you, God, but because of our sin, we are blind. We constantly serve only ourselves. We live, like, we live life like zombies, spiritually dead in our sin. We don't, we don't seem to get that we can't not sin, and we can't save ourselves. It's as though you... Uh, it is only through you that we can truly live. Moreover, we get a life which was written before the beginning of time, and it's even better than we could have planned for, our, for ourselves. Lord God, by your amazing mercy, you bring us to life and make us the prize of your grace. God, we thank you that you are our salvation, um, that we're able to see who you truly are, that you made us for yourself and made us to live the life that we were truly meant to. Thank you that you are good, even if it's despite us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Please, you may be seated. Thank you, Ani. Excellent job. I, at the last couple of weeks, I have given you guys some very long passages to read. That was outstanding work. Um, as you know, we're continuing our series in uh, 
in uh, random passages, various passages in uh, scripture, and the theme of the series is uh, the idea that we're all telling a story with our lives, whether we realize it or not. If you were here last week, we talked about the fact that every one of our lives actually tells a story, and God's actually the author, which challenges a lot of the ways that we tend to consciously or even consciously think about ourselves, uh, and that we're so inclined to think about ourselves as being the author of our lives, ourselves, and the story that we're telling to the world. And uh, This week we're going to be considering what that means as we begin to live out of the reality that God's the author of our story. A lot of you guys know that I do um, quite a bit of the counseling, biblical counseling here at our church. It's something that I love, and uh, so I'm always doing research on how people relate to God as their creator and what that means in terms of us working on our spiritual health, our emotional health, and even our physical health. And uh, as I was writing our passage, I remember some research I did about people's core beliefs and how they're able or unable, how they may struggle to live them out. And it was a group of um, Christian psychologists and scholars who did all this research, coming up with a counseling model uh, for the church. And it's really pretty fascinating for me. It may not be for you if that's not your thing, but uh, it's the kind of stuff that I geek out on. But some of the things that they found in the research was uh, while most professing Christians would be able to intellectually assent or agree to uh, the core beliefs of the Christian faith, that it was almost universal that people at some point would struggle uh, to be rooted in those beliefs or to live out of those beliefs, particularly when they found themselves in times of crisis. Uh, and that's almost universal. If you're a human being, you've either had a crisis recently, you may be currently in a crisis, and if not, there's a crisis coming down the road in life. It's just part of living in an imperfect and uh, unsaved world. It applies to all of us. Uh, what's interesting, though, is they found that people who had what they say a close proximity to God, meaning they knew him well intellectually, they felt like they could understand him based on studying scripture and how he revealed himself, but also experientially, so emotionally and spiritually, they had this track record of experiencing God in a personal way in those lives. They said that those people typically uh, were able to practice what they would call a healthy attachment to God, little counseling lingo. Uh, what does that mean? They were able to live uh, with a firmly held belief and live out of a belief that they were living in close uh, proximity to God, and that influenced their ability to trust that God was stronger and wiser than they were. If you're like me, that's a challenge. <laughs> a lot of days to be convinced of that. Uh, they were able to uh, view God as a safe haven during crisis. One of my favorite ways that God is described in uh, Scripture is that He's our safe retreat, and they they were able to trust that and then, and to know that about God. Uh, they also were able to really live out of uh, the reality that God was a firm and sure foundation upon which they could explore their life, uh, grow in their understanding of themselves, and grow in their relationship with God. So kind of some of the stuff that we talked about in our first sermon, they were able to truly flourish in the way that God designed them to. Uh, the key that was universal for every person that was able to honestly say those things about their life and their faith was that they all had a firmly held belief based on faith but also experience that God was trustworthy. Something that God reminds you and I of over and over and over again in scripture. And so when we look at Psalm 39, here's what I want us to think about in terms of what we've been considering in this series. And that's that living out of our role in God's story means that we practice trusting the God who made us. We put it into work. Three ways that I think uh, at some point is probably gonna make every one of us uncomfortable in this room. I'm gonna highlight three ways that we see this in Psalm 139. That's gonna be so personal that I think it'll probably make all of us uneasy. Uh, first, that God is especially interested in you. He's especially interested in you. And I don't mean you like universally, like everybody that is saved in the church. I mean you as an individual, that God is especially interested in you. Uh, the first 12 verses in this psalm um, give us a great example of some really beautiful theology. The term that, the two terms that scholars will sometimes use to kind of summarize 
these two doctrines are God's omnipresence and God's omniscience. And basically what that means, when we say that God is omnipresent, it means that by his very nature, he's everywhere all the time. If you've read scripture at all, that's somewhat familiar because God always says when he saves you that he actually gives you a spirit and that he literally is with you all the time at every moment of your life. So that's true in a grand scale, everything that God's created, even the fallen creation and everybody in it, people that know him intimately and people that don't. God is everywhere all the time. And the other one is God's omniscience. It means that God knows everything. Should already start feeling uneasy at this point. Uh, and it's not just that God knows everything that's happening in world events, which he does. And sometimes that could lead us to really weighty questions that we wonder how God is operating, what he's up to, and even question what he may be like when we see some of the things that happen in a fallen world. Here though, it means that God knows everything about you personally. That he knows every thought, every desire, every action, even before you take them. Uh, as David points out, he says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. And what he's highlighting is kind of two aspects of both those doctrines. What he's saying is, you know, if you notice, he uses all this language. If I go to the highest heights, if I were to go to heaven, you'd be there. He says, if I go to Sheol, and basically what he's saying, if I went to the land of the dead, you would even be there. If I went to the darkest of the dark places and all of creation, that wouldn't be dark for you. It would still be like light to you. Everywhere I go, you are there. And he also makes it deeply personal. He says, every thought that I have, every word that's uttered out of my mouth, you know it before I do. Gosh, I hate these mics. Now for most of us, if you think about the idea that God knows your every thought, what's your auto response? Oh man, God really loves me. <laughs> no, right? I mean, it's a common phrase. I say this about myself, you know, people be like, oh, Brian, you know, you're such a generous person. I'm like, man, if you know what was running through my head on any given day, you would not be saying that about me. How many of us, you know, how many of us have said that multiple times in our life? Uh, when we consider that, not just that God knows everything out there in the world, but that God knows everything about us, that he knows our thoughts and all our actions before we even take them, it usually winds up formulating in a question in our hearts that goes along the lines of, if God knows all this stuff that goes around in my head and my heart, I wonder what he actually thinks of me. I wonder what God really truly thinks of me. Uh, I know the promises in scripture, what God says about how much he loves me, but I wonder what he thinks about me personally, given all the stuff that I've done all the things that I still think, the ways that I fall short in terms of following him. And you know, when I read this psalm, uh, it's always a wonderful challenge to my sense of doubt in God's desire to know me intimately and to be present in my life. I think what's hard to believe when we really slow down and read this psalm is not just that we're fully known, uh, but that we're still fully loved by God. You know, I, I shared this in a sermon a while back where I, I was sharing about the gospel with a man and, and one of the things that was so offensive about him was that God was just but also merciful. And embedded in that was the reality that he could not handle the fact that God sees the very worst of individuals, sees how unjust we can be and yet still decides to show them mercy. In effect, he still chooses to love them when he saves them. Now, it's one of the most offensive aspects of God's grace towards fallen humanity. David knows that, and when he penned Psalm 139, he did that with the conscious knowledge of how he lived his life. And when you and I read the psalm, and we consider that question, we do it with the conscious knowledge of every thought that we have, every action that we take, and it leads us to wonder if God truly loves us. And his response is here in Psalm 139. And it kind of makes you uneasy, right? If you have a best friend, a spouse, anybody, and you treated them 
with inconsistencies. Sometimes you're good to them, sometimes you weren't. What would you expect them to do in return? You'd expect them to do the same. You would feel like that's justified. When we read this psalm and consider the fact that God sees and knows everything about us and chooses to be present with us, what we see is his response to that, to the worst of us, that he chooses to be devoted to you and I. And not just out of a moral obligation. You know, sometimes I am super guilty of this. I think about God saving me and I'm like, yeah, it's because I was a train wreck and somebody had to stop me. You know, I, when I got sober, I found a whole new level of appreciation for the idea of being arrested, you know? There's always something that I wanted to avoid at all costs. And looking back, I'm like, yeah, somebody needed to arrest me from self-destruction, like literally stop me from what I was doing. Uh, but I always viewed that in negative terms. What I didn't see is that God was choosing to intervene, literally enter into my life and save me from the things that he knew were going to destroy me. And he chose to do that, not out of mere obligation, or so he could have this wonderful trophy to put on his shelf, but because he was genuinely interested in saving me. Because he made me, and he made me with an intent and a purpose in mind. Uh, <clears throat> when David says, you have searched me and known me, what he's saying is that God knows the very depths of his heart. And when you read this psalm, what God wants you to know is that he knows the very depths of your heart. Every aspect of your heart. Think about how many of you feel like you truly know your heart? Does anybody really know the depths of their heart? <laughs> nobody, right? If we're honest, nobody really knows what lurks in the recesses of our heart. God knows the very depths of your heart. Uh, he knows every thought that arises out of your heart, every desire, whether it's good or whether it's been twisted by sin. God knows every one of those that lurks in the recesses of your heart, even before you do. That's one of the most amazing things about the psalm for me is before I even set out to have a thought, to formulate a desire, to take an action in my life, God knows that before I do. And he still chooses to be present with me. And he still chooses to be genuinely interested in me. You know, so much of what we think and how we think about God kind of gets tossed on its head when we read sections of scripture like this that are so uncomfortably personal and intimate. Uh, the idea of God being personally involved in our lives by choice with a genuine desire to do that uh, challenges the way that you and I tend to think and the way we tend to approach God. Typically, when I talk to a person, when they're unguarded and just open, when I talk to a person, the way that they think about God is as if he's a subject that they want to learn something about. Presbyterians, we're notorious for this. Love doctrines, love theology, and it creates a very safe place to know everything about God, but not be intimately exposed to him. It's one of my favorite tactics. My fallen heart's one of my favorite tactics. I could tell you all about God as long as he's at an arm's length away from me. Uh, but we tend to approach our relationship with God as if he's a subject that we need to know about and learn about. Uh, we treat God like he's something that we need to read a book about like he's a car manual, like he's a car and we're reading a car manual about him. Uh, we tend to drop into church to cultivate a sense of reverence for God without realizing it. You know, I wonder what God's up to. Let's drop into church this Sunday. Uh, we watch a sunset or we go on a hike so we can cultivate a sense of awe for God's nature and what he's created. Uh, all these things in a way keep us at a safe distance and we think about it backwards. At its heart, we begin with the wrong starting point in how we think about God. I think the fundamental flaw for every one of us is that we begin with ourselves versus beginning with God. And Psalm 139 flips that. It begins with God, and then it addresses you and I. In this psalm, if we see anything, it's that the God, God is the source from which every aspect of your life develops. Uh, and in that, every aspect of your existence only finds its meaning in the God who created you. 
You know, when David says, how precious are your thoughts, oh God, how vast is the sum of them, it's a response to him realizing that if he begins with God, he truly begins to understand himself. And he truly begins to understand that God is deeply devoted to him in a personal and intimate way, that God is always present with him and chooses to do that out of genuine interest for him. Uh, The beautiful reality in that is that God has searched your heart He knows everything that you know and he knows everything that you don't that's in your heart, that he's acquainted with every thought and desire that you've had, that you are having, and that you will ever have in your life. And he still chose you. I mean, when I think about salvation, that's the thing that boggles my mind. And a lot of the times, like if if I've had a rough week, if I've been struggling in my life with sin or unbelief or fear or any number of things, it's so hard for me to latch on to this reality. And I begin to think that God you know, chose me and then kind of regretted it because I'm making a mess of things, but he's gonna keep me around because he's covenantal, so we kind of have this contract. It's morally obligated, so okay, man, it, this is a mess. You know, like some kind of a latchkey kid in the kingdom of God. But that's not what God's saying here. What he's saying is that he saw and knew every part of you, and he chose you knowing all of it, he still chose you. And not just chose you and then puts you on the shelf, but he decided that he would be intimately involved in every aspect of your life because he loves you that much. That leads to the second thing. If God is intimately uh, involved in our life and genuinely interested in us, the psalm also highlights the fact that God's especially concerned about you. Anytime I think about that statement, most of the time when I've heard, you know, I'm concerned about you, it's always in a negative consequence, you know? Uh, Like Janie typically sometimes will be like, hey, I'm feeling genuinely concerned about how much ice cream you're eating lately, or the fact that you're coming home with boxes of Hostess cupcakes. (laughs) Funny story, not related. Uh, Matt and I were in a men's group together at my house, and uh, he was sitting at my desk one time, and... And uh, he was just kind of like looking at my desk. He's like, oh, this is a really nice desk. And he leaned down. Janie and I were standing there talking to him about it. He leaned down and he was like, oh, let me check out the drawers. And he opened it up and there was my secret sin. It was this box of hostess ho-hos <laughs> that, I knew I sh- that I knew I shouldn't have bought because they're bad for me. And Janie was like, here we are. <laughs> I love that story. I still haven't forgiven you, though. Um, When we think about the fact that God is especially concerned with us, typically we can wonder, like, concerned like I'm disappointing him or concerned because he likes me? And depending on where we judge ourselves to be on any given day in our walk of faith, how we think about ourselves and how we're living, there's no telling what kind of an answer that we'll come up with. Oftentimes, it's easier for people to look at the intricate uh, way that God has created um, nature, look into the beauty of all of creation, and to see and to believe uh, the intimate care and concern with which God has shaped everything, uh, the world in which we live. But when we think about the intimate involvement in our formation that God says that he's performed, uh, that he worked out every aspect of your life, Uh, down to the number of days that he ordained your first breath to your last breath, that he ordained every day of your life and what would happen in it. And not just as a clockmaker who winds it up and sets it on a table and then walks away, but that when he did it, he was genuinely and lovingly concerned about everything that would happen. It kind of rocks our boat. It challenges us to see God as a God who genuinely desires to be intimately involved in you and the concerns of your life. Uh, When he created you, he formed every aspect of you. What does that mean? Uh, And he did that with you in mind. That's the thing that I, I love about God. When he created you, he created you with the way you think, the way you walk, the way you talk, uh, the things that you desire, the gifts that you have, uh, the frailties that you have. Uh, the things that you would have to grow in, um, your inclinations, your desires. 
He formulated all those things. When he put you together, he did it with intricate care and concern, and he designed you with you in mind, thinking about the days of your life and the way that you would live. There's a lot of reasons that I think people have uh, difficulty getting their head and their heart around this. First, I mean, that's like some next level stuff, right? We, we are a part of creation, so we can think about creating something in a very fundamental way. Uh, God gives us the ability to create and steward things, and in that way, we resemble him. We image him, in a sense. Uh, but to the, the level that the psalm is speaking about here, we can't even really begin to fathom. And sometimes it's just hard to believe that, that God is that concerned with you as an individual that he shaped every aspect of you, every moment of your life, every day of your life, everything that would happen in a way that's tailored to you living out your life with him. The one thing that I've found, though, that's universal for every human being uh, is that most people at some point will decide I'm not worthy of that kind of interest. I'm not worthy of that kind of genuine concern by the God who created me, especially in light of how, fall, how often I fall short of honoring him with my life. And underneath that uh, is the fact that every one of us, if we're really honest, is never concerned with God the way that he's concerned with us. And look, heart to heart, you guys, I can tell you that's true for every single person in this room right now. Preacher first. I could tell you that's just as true of me at any given moment as it is every one of us. That you and I are never as concerned about God as he is about us. So what do we do with that? Now if you and I were left with ourselves and left to look for answers in the world, we usually come up with two responses. One, God's not really all that good. He doesn't really love me that much, so I'll just love him the way he loves me. Two, there's no way that God could love me after realizing that I'm not half as concerned about him as he is with me. You see, Psalm 139 is God's heart on display in response to that reality. That even when you're not very concerned about God, he's genuinely concerned about you, and his love for you never wavers. Uh, look, I can tell you there's Sunday mornings when be between the time I get in the car and drive down here to preach, Brian's been more on my mind than God has. That's just honest. And how many of us, when we drive to church, by the time we get here, we've thought about 47 things and none of them were God. But I can tell you that every waking moment of your life, God is genuinely concerned with you where you're at in your life and what you're going through and what you're experiencing, what you're thinking, the desires of your heart. And he's constantly, joyfully, and intentionally working on those things, helping you grow in understanding him and in your faith in him. Uh, long before you were ever concerned, even about the idea of God, he was genuinely concerned with you. <laughs> Long before you ever thought that God might be important, even the idea of God, that the idea of God might be important, God decided that you were going to be very important to him. And he chose to be involved in every detail of your life. When God formed you, he knew every event that would unfold in your life. And he chose to be intimately involved in every single one of them. You know, this has huge relevance for uh, things like suffering and how we grow in our faith and learning to depend on God uh, in terms of how we live, what we do, all the big questions of life. This has huge import, and we're going to talk about this in more detail next week, but this has, uh, this has special relevance for suffering. Uh, we did a Sunday school series where we discussed the idea that God gives us these categories and how to understand ourselves. And three of the major categories are that we're sinners, sufferers, and saints. And that we need to view our lives through those three categories. And suffering is one of the biggest categories that we see that God addresses uh, in scripture. Whenever I counsel somebody that's experiencing a crisis in their life, uh, spiritual, emotional, or physical in nature, 
uh, when they are suffering, typically they'll find themselves asking uh, familiar questions, questions that are familiar to all of us. Typically it'll be something along the lines of, I don't know where God's at in all of this. And if that's unanswered, we find ourselves asking, I wonder if God's actually absent or uninterested in my suffering. And sometimes we'll find ourselves asking, I wonder if God actually cares. And that gives way to wondering if God's actually fair or not. Uh, when we're drowning in our suffering, we begin to ask all the wrong questions uh, about God and how involved he is in our life. But I, I'll tell you, to a person, uh, in my experience, when people persist in genuinely wanting answers to those questions, God always answers them in his own perfect timing. And he answers them in a way that reflects the reality that he is genuinely interested in what you're going through and he's genuinely concerned about what you're experiencing, especially as it relates to your relationship with him and how you live your life. Uh, you know, I asked Jason to um, share a picture with you of uh, me and my daughter, and th this point reminds me of this story. Also, side note, very rare uh, sighting of me without a mustache, if you're interested, but... Uh, this picture is, I, there's not a time that I look at this picture that I don't get um, emotional. If you don't know who this woman is with me, that's my oldest daughter. She's 24 years old. Of course, to me, she's still my baby, but she's my uh, original, my original baby. This picture always gets me really, really uh, choked up, and uh, I'll tell you the reason why. This picture is a picture that I took just impromptu when I was with Lila on a um, trip to Yosemite National Park. And if you know me, you know I love the wilderness, I love hiking, and that park actually is my favorite park on the whole planet. If there's any like, particular place where I feel God's presence and he tends to speak to me in a very personal way, the way that I'm geared, it's in nature. So usually it's on the ocean or it's somewhere like Yosemite National Park. And uh, of course, she's my original daughter. You know, when I had her, I was 24 years old and I was an absolute lunatic at that point in my life. I was several years sober, had no idea what it meant to be a man, clearly no idea what it meant to be a father and to raise another human being. And God gave me Lila and through that, he helped me grow in all these ways that were specifically tailored to me. This particular trip is one that we took um, after fighting uh, a divorce for three years. Uh, if you know my story, you know I went through a very prolonged divorce with my first wife. And uh, I had this entire life that I really loved and cherished and was holding on to and I was trying to save my marriage and save our family for three years. And if, if you're a parent, you relate to the, the fact that we would do anything to save our children from being harmed. You would do anything. And I'd spent three years trying to save that marriage and our family from falling apart. And it was a very difficult season in my life because I watched my daughter go through all these incredibly traumatic and painful things in our divorce. It was a real mess. And towards the end of that, right around this point, I realized that it, it was ending. It was gonna end. And I was losing everything I had. I was getting ready to sell the house that I owned. Uh, I was signing the paperwork for the divorce. And at one point, I just, I grabbed Lila, we were both just a mess, and I said, hey, let's just go on a trip, we'll go up to Yosemite. So we headed up there, and Lila loves photography, and at that point she was really, really passionate about it. I said, we'll go to the park, you'll be amazed at how beautiful it is, you can take photography. And this particular moment, this picture, reminds me of our third day there, we went up to a place called Glacier Point, it's the most beautiful spot in the park, in my opinion, and we were sitting there, and I was watching her, take photographs and she was genuinely happy and just loving the moment and taking pictures and I was watching her and God overwhelmed me with this sense of his presence and he reminded me that he knew what I had been going through for three years and that he was with me and that he was concerned about me and that he was concerned about my daughter and that he loved us. And in that moment, I was overwhelmed with a sense of faith that even though I didn't know what was going to happen, that we were going to be okay. That's why you see me smiling ear to ear. You can see all my wrinkles. And if you look, 
I actually was crying right before we got in the truck trying to hide it from Lila. And then I said, let's take this photo. And then, you know, of course, she was oblivious. She's like, whatever, Dad, let's go. But uh, it was this transformative moment in my life where I realized that God is genuinely concerned about me. He was genuinely concerned about what I was going through and that he was ministering to me in it. When I talk about God being especially concerned and interested in you, that's what I mean. That he's always present with us and always devoted to us. Uh, when we have these experiences, when we test out through times of crisis or in everyday life, whether or not God is really interested and concerned and present and directing the steps of our lives, uh, it creates a whole new depth of trust in his particular design for you personally. It reshapes how we think about our life with God altogether. Think about just the idea of spiritual growth in general. It's the, it's the process where God sifts us out, uh, where he takes the good that he's given us and he matures it. He turns it into something beautiful, right? And where he looks at the bad thing, the broken and the flawed in us, and he in his own perfect way begins to remove it from our life. All that reflects a very personal nature of somebody that's devoted to you and I. Uh, and it begins to cultivate a type of trust that you and I can only gain from practicing a relationship with a God who knows all of us and still chooses to love us who still chooses to help us grow into what he's called us to be. Think about your human relationships with other people. Uh, think about the relationship that you have that's the healthiest, the relationships that you have that flourish the most. Uh, what are the things that make that flourish? If you're married for any length of time, you know this. When you have a relationship where you're genuinely connected with somebody, where you have a healthy attachment, uh, where you genuinely are flourishing with that person, there's a couple of things that are always present. There's a sense of security that gives way to a sense of trust in that person because they know all of you. They know the best part of you, they know the worst part of you, and they still love you. And not just that they love you, but they still choose to be involved in your life. Think about it, you know, if you're married or you, you've dated people, think about dating. When you start out dating, what do you do? You give them the rap sheet of the worst parts of you? <laughs> no, always put our best foot forward, right? So what do you like? Well, I like praying, I like doing devotions every day, I spend 90 minutes in meditation in the afternoon, and then I fast three days a week because I love Jesus, I make a whole bunch of money, I'm really successful, I'm emotionally balanced, I work out nine times a week. Always put our best foot forward. And you know, when we do premarital counseling, we see it all the time. It's the first thing I tell people, I'm like, please, 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 let's talk about all the baggage right out the gate. Please, for the love of God, literally, the love of God is wanting you to talk about all the baggage first. Why? Because it's gonna come out. And when people have that experience with another sinner and they realize that that person is still choosing to love them, they have a sense of security and trust and intimacy that you cannot gain in any other way. Uh, that's just a mere shadowy example of how God chooses to be in his relationship with you. Um, the beautiful thing about God is that he bypasses all the sticky stuff that we have to go through with human relationships, right? And the reason why isn't that he's just like, oh, let me look through the phone book of every person I've created, and I choose you, I choose you. He was there at the foundation of your life inspecting you, considering how he would shape you, knowing what would make you tick, and choosing to be intimately involved in you, in shaping you, in saving you, in redeeming you, in turning you into something that he says is a beautiful masterpiece. Uh, before God made you, he chose to save you but not only chose to save you, he chose to love you in a way that nobody else can. That also means uh, another uncomfortable truth that God's will is especially tailored to you. And that's the last point, that God's will is especially tailored to you. 
I almost didn't write this point this way because the church is filled with so much bad teaching on this subject. I mean, if you go home and Google God's will for you, you will be shocked at what comes up. Some of it's really beautiful and wonderful, but we live in a day and an age where the church has been very influenced uh, by outside teachings that are just straight up heretical that say God's will is tailored to you. And what that really means is that God's will is tailored to what you think will make you happy. When Rob and I were talking about this series, we started joking around. He's like, yeah, we should just name the series The Summer Breakthrough. That's always a common series on like really bad teaching. Like, oh, you guys ready for a summer breakthrough? God's gonna just take your life and level it up this summer. Just come hear this teaching because God wants everything that you want for you. So let's do it. Uh, and it's true. Psalm 139 is one of those passages where God is having a breakthrough, but he's breaking through all your nonsense that you think about yourself, what will make you happy, and even what you think about him, all the bad ideas that we have about him and reminding you uh, what his love really means and how it plays out in our life. Um, none of that reflects the heart of God that's on display in Psalm 139. Here's one of the things that I just kept uh, finding myself grateful for as, as I read this week. Psalm 139 always reminds me that, that God is truly generous by his nature. Uh, he gave us our very existence. He gave us the world in which we live. Uh, he gave us the ability to even breathe and to walk and to pretty well do as we please. He gave us the salvation we possess. He didn't do that in a general way. He did that specifically with you in mind. And you know why he did it? Because he's a giver. Because he's just that generous. And he loves to share his generosity with people who don't deserve it. And people who sometimes don't even want it. Giving is woven into the very fabric of your existence. Uh, like I said, we live in a world that offers you one million ways to define yourself, to write your own story. And it offers us a multitude of ways to live according to what we think and often what the world tells us will bring us a sense of self-worth and affirmation and a sense of satisfaction. And in doing that, seeking out what we think is best for us, living according to our own design, uh, we'll be able to live with a sense of dignity and self-respect about who we've made ourselves into. And I gotta tell you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. It's an absolute lie. This always results in a life that's ruled by fear. Uh, because the person that signs up for that and tries to create themselves and their life in a way that they think will make them happy always finds themselves constantly having to recreate who they think they are and how they live. They'll be searching for it in new relationships. If relationships don't give us the meaning and the significance that we want, we look for new ones. We'll look for it in career paths. If we find ourselves waking up and not finding meaning in what we do, then we'll just bail out on that and we'll do something else. I see it time and time again. People will feel compelled to do whatever they need in order to make themselves happy and ultimately they're always unfulfilled uh, in order for you and I to live properly we need to learn to live out of the reality that our lives are a story that was written and begun and will be concluded by somebody else and that other person is God and that's the biggest leap of faith and trust that every one of us will ever take because it poses us with a question again and, and again and again. When we think about who we are, how we're geared, what we'll do with our lives, ultimately we find ourselves asking, is God's design for me better than the design that I'm tempted to create for myself? The fact that God made you means that there's dignity and value and meaning embedded in your design. The dignity and meaning that you and I seek in life is already embedded in God's design of us. Now when we talk about us being made in the image of God in a general way, that's 100% true. 
I find that people don't spend nearly enough time thinking about the fact that the dignity and meaning that you seek in life, God personally embedded in the very special way that he made you as an individual. Uh, and when we begin to practice trusting God, that his design for us, meaning the way that he's geared our life and our heart, how we live, what we do, we begin to sense the type of satisfaction that we always yearn for. Um, because it's only found in that relationship with him. So people ask me, Brian, what do you think God's will is for my life? I could tell you what scripture says, uh, but I can't tell you how that's gonna play out in the days of your life. Maybe that makes me a bad counselor. <laughs> but I gotta tell you, that's been one of the most relieving things for me as a pastor, is to realize I don't even know what it means for all the days of my life. So I can't tell you what it means for the days of your life. But none of that matters as much as the fact that the one who created you knows exactly what it means and exactly how it'll play out. And his will includes you and your heart and your faith. And when he says that he's turning you into a masterpiece, it includes you personally, the desires of your heart, the goals that you set in life, the way that you live, the relationships that you value, the things that you yearn for, God redeems all of those things and his will is shaped in a way where no matter where you and I go, no matter what we do, we will find meaning and value in learning how to live according to the design that he's given us as individuals. See, the riddle of life uh, is not solved in figuring out who you think you should be <laughs> or what you think you should do. Those are important questions Look, there was a time when I remember a mentor of mine, early on he said, I can't remember what I was telling him, I think actually I, I did a spiritual, uh, spiritual gift test once, right when I first got saved, and I went to my friend and I told him, I like, hey man, look at my spiritual gift test. He's like, oh yeah, what came up on it? I'm like, well, I think I'm supposed to be a prophet. He's like, whoa, 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 <laughs> what do you mean by that? I'm like, I don't know, man, I think I got the gift of prophecy. And he's like, okay, well, let's talk, about, let's talk about that. And in that conversation, he said, you know, I've always seen you as somebody who could be a really gifted uh, biblical counselor. And I was so offended. I was like, hey, man, I'm about to bring some fresh revelation and you're talking to me about talking with people about their problems all day. Super offensive idea. Anybody that knows me knows you could lock me in a closet and tell me all I'm going to do is counseling and I'd be as happy as ever. And the reason why is I began to see how God was shaping the very desires, the way he designed me personally in a way that I would find fulfillment in living out life according to the gifts he's given me, the desires that he cultivated, and the circumstances of my life. That divorce was one of those circumstances. I'd never wish what I went through on any other human being. I can tell you that, honest to goodness. But I can also tell you that every difficult thing that I went through was part of God's plan of shaping me into a man who genuinely loves to share hope with other human beings. There's no other way I could have gotten there. But God knew that when he formed me and he shaped me in a way that I would grow into the sense of value and significance and meaning that he promised for me when he formed me through all those winding roads. You know, the psalm ends with this kind of incredible statement. The last thing that David exclaims, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. And you know, at first glance, you might think, Well, that's a lot more courage than I have. I don't know if I want to ask God uh, to search every part of me and to know my thoughts and to tell me about every grievous thing that dwells in the recesses of my heart. But you know, it's not so much, that's not a statement about David's courage or the unique nature of his faith. That is a spirit-filled response to the reality of knowing that God formed every part of him. When you and I ask that question, we're asking it with a feeble faith and we're practicing trust that God knows every aspect of us and he loves every part of us and the parts that are not redeemed, he is removing from us. And so to ask him to search us and to know our hearts is to ask him 
to continue that process of turning us into who he's designed us to be in the first place. God formed you with a specific tent. He has a specific will for you in mind. Uh, whether you realize that or not, whether you struggle to believe that or not. And there's circumstances and dynamics in that that none of us will know until we look in hindsight. But here's what's true of every one of us. That God has designed every one of us in a way that to find the meaning and value, to live out our role in God's story, to live useful and meaningful lives, it always begins with abandoning ourselves to him. And then learning how to give ourselves to other people. And you know, anytime I think about the most perplexing questions in life regarding our faith, it always leads me back to one thing. Every question that you and I face in life finds its answer at the cross. If you wonder if it's reasonable for you to do what God calls you to do, whether they're good things, hard things, difficult things, excruciatingly things, and wonder if God's gonna do anything useful and meaningful for you in it, you look to the cross. You see, we can abandon ourselves to God because he gave his son for us, right? And we are designed, the very fabric of who we are and how God's made us, we are designed to give ourselves to other, others. And the reason why is because God doesn't, God doesn't leave us out of the equation. When he gave his son for us, he gave him for you and I personally. And he redeemed every aspect of us. And when he calls us to give ourselves to others, to live lives of service, he's calling us to model that self-sacrificing love to a world that is convinced that God doesn't know them. And if he knows them, he doesn't love them. And when we do that, we help them see and experience God as he is, the God of Psalm 139. Amen. Pray with me. Let's thank God for this overwhelming beautiful love of Christ for us. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for, um, <laughs> we thank you for these beautiful realities that can be so hard for us to believe and to latch on to. We thank you that you are a God that goes to extraordinary lengths to show us that you take joy in being present with us and that you're genuinely interested in us personally, that you know all the days of our lives and that you formed every one of them in a way that would bring us to you. And in bringing us to yourself, we would find the meaning and the value and the fulfillment of all the hopes that we yearn to experience in that relationship. We thank you that you're a God who gives and that in giving your son for us you make us whole and that you liberate us to see how living our lives is really an act of gratitude and giving ourselves to others for what you've done for us. We thank you for all these things. It's in your son's precious name that we pray, amen.